Welcome to Grazed in America podcast. I'm your host, August Horstman. Yeah, if you want to just start with your your name and whatever whatever else you want to tell me. Oh, that's scary. Um, all right. Well, I'm Gatlin Button. I'm the director of the Wardak ex- education, the Wardak Extension and Education Center is what it's called now. Um, <clears throat> so, with that, we uh, do a lot of demonstrations, do a lot of uh, programming, and have uh, have tried to become more farmer focused try to do more education um you know in the past it was in a a uh, college of ag farm and had uh, a lot of research projects going on now we're under extension so it works out pretty well to take all of the stuff that i had issues with during my time as an extension agronomist and try to address those in a way that farmers can follow yeah. Um. What school? What is it associated with? Uh, yeah. 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 Location. All that kind of crap. Yeah. Back to that. Um. Yeah. So the Wardeck Extension and Education Center is uh, run by the University of Missouri. So, uh, we are located in the Ozarks, or kind of the northeast part of the Ozarks. It's in Cook Station, which uh, the old farm manager put it pretty well. No one's ever accidentally found Cook Station. We're, we're kind of in the middle of the sticks, so you've got to know where you're going to find us. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, and so you're basically, as the crow flies, what it take you to get an hour here, an hour to get up here, so you're... Yeah, just about. Pretty much straight south and a little bit west. Yep, just barely too. So we're kind of between Steelville, Missouri, and Salem, Missouri. Okay, sounds good. I, I bought a ca- set of cows. That's uh, Steelville, and then what goes towards St. James to the to the west? Uh, that'd be Highway Eight. Eight, and then you turn at the sn- the campground that's always decorated like Christmas. Yeah, the uh, the Christmas campground goes south about ten twelve miles, and then you hit the little town of Cook Station. Okay, and yep. We're just east of there. About halfway down, I picked up a set of Corianni cows down there one time. This uh, probably about mm, April, April, May. Okay. I think I know right where they came from. Yeah. <laughs> yep. we, you know, I don't know <coughs> if we should say his name, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, okay, back to, uh, you know, Wardak Farm. So you came on as the manager. You were doing what before? Background? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, got started with extension in 2019. Um, and that was, that was, that was a logical place for me to go kind of with my, my interest and my background in, in weed science and pastures, um, worked as a uh, field specialist in agronomy. So basically served, uh, up to 10 counties at one point and did, uh, nothing but, um, pastures, pasture weeds, a little bit of row crops thrown in just enough to keep me sharp on it, but, um, in March is when that transition that I kind of talked about, but uh, Wardak is now part of Extension instead of the College of Ag. So at that point, I was uh, named director. So that's whenever I, I took over, March of 2022. Okay. And w- what uh, has, what as director, what have you changed? 
So as director, um, what I've tried to do is make it a little more demonstration-oriented. Okay. So beforehand, you know, there was field days and, you know, some extension programming went on out there. But now what I'm planting, the way I'm taking the cow herd, it's all just to be the next thing. You know, we have we have a rotational grazing system there. That was probably it might not have been the first, but it was definitely one of the first in intentional management intensive grazing systems in the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, that system's been there since 1980. So it's been there a while. But the thing that I've noticed in my time there is if a farmer hasn't adopted rotational grazing by now, they're not going to do it. Yeah. So, you know, we host grazing schools. We host field days there. If you're at the grazing school, usually they're there to learn. They want to see it. But mm-hmm. if you're at the field day and you're just a normal farmer, you've either adopted it or you've come up with every excuse on why you're not going to adopt rotational grazing. Mm-hmm. So the direction I'm trying to take it is to, to have that newest thing. And, um, you know, it's all about reaching those early adopters because eventually the crazy ones become the normal ones. And what mm-hmm. looks wrong now is the norm in 10 years, 20 years. So I really think that's going to be going – hay free or at least reduced hay feeding Mm -hmm. um you know in missouri especially southern missouri i don't see a reason why we need to feed hay i've got a friend out in wyoming she feeds hay less than some of the farmers i've worked with in southern missouri yeah she's feeding for four months and she has six feet of snow those four months what part so she's in northwest wyoming so she's almost to yellowstone oh where like what city or what shoot i don't know what city she's actually near (laughs) okay i went to high school in northwest wyoming that's why i'm asking okay okay yeah no she's worked her way out there from uh colorado went up but anyway she feeds less hay Mm -hmm. than some of the guys that i work with in in southern missouri yeah and some of that is you know just a just a management thing Mm -hmm. you know whether we're overgrazed or you know, we're, we're running too many cows. Some of it's just, we've got the equipment, so we're going to make hay regardless of whether we need to or not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can get away with it. Sometimes you can't. There's a cost associated with actually growing the hay when you could have just grazed it. You know, there's, there's been several studies on that, that the cost of making hay, the, the cost of production from the plant point of view, if you would have grazed it and just kind of kept it more productive instead of letting everything grow and then taking everything, mm-hmm. you can actually reduce your overall yield throughout the year. Your overall yield? Your overall dry matter production. Okay. Sounds good. Um, yeah, we, well, with kind of the way fertilizer prices and stuff did went this year, we uh, had a, some, some rented ground we went and looked at uh, where our bulls are right now, and to fertilize it just this year was going to cost me almost as much as I was going to buy buy the hay for. Yeah. Uh, fertilizer plus paying the guy to custom graze it. You know, that wasn't figuring what the land cost or anything like that or the hauling, but just the fertilizer and the custom baling, you know, I think. And he was reasonable. I think he was at 17 a bale. Mm. Yeah, uh, cut, raked, <laughs> cut, raked, baled, and then plus the fertilizer – you know, was it basically cost the same amount as what it did for me to buy the hay from him. Yeah, and I mean, that's the other thing to think of. I'm not saying hay is bad. No. Hay is a great way to, you know, 
carry your herd through the winter, it's a great way to move nutrients around, whether that's moving nutrients from somebody else or, you know, putting stuff in a field where you need it. Yeah, it's more of a tool than it's it a great be tool mo- used in this area, in my opinion. I mean, maybe it's a fact. It should be used <laughs> as a tool, not so much as let's uh, pull them off feed feed them year round. That being said, um, this year you know drier year we did some heavier calling. We shipped out some cows to custom grazing, um, it, but we still bought. Two, I think we're running about two bales per cow right now. A bale, uh, or have like one point seven five bales on hand per cow. That's mm-hmm. still here. I mean, that's not gonna at that rate. I still feel that that's a tool. It's a very good tool, and you put yourself in a bad situation by not having some hay. Mm-hmm. You know, drought happens. Cows get out. They eat all your stockpile. Whatever it may be, ice, ice, but to an extent. We're in southern Missouri, so wait two days and it'll go away. <laughs> Fair enough. But you still need it. <clears throat> but you still need it for those two days. Yep. Um, but, no, it's a great tool, and you can get yourself in a in a bad spot if you don't have any of it. Yeah. And but, uh, so let's say we want to graze. I kind of always figured three acres to a cow with a bale of bought hay, kind of maybe a, a rough rule of thumb. What are you thinking to bale? Or to graze all the way through. Yeah, so what I'm doing there at Wardeck this year is uh, I'm a little over, I guess, um, four acres per cow. Four acres. And that works out pretty well whenever I throw in some some other stockpiles. Um, you know, it's it's not going to be done on, on fescue alone. I think okay. your acreage is going to have to go up. To if you're in a straight fescue base, if you're in a straight fescue base, I think it'll have to go up a little bit. But the way to get around that is, you know, we rely on you know maybe some some warm season grasses in the summer, kind of let that fescue rest a little bit more, get some more stockpile, or utilize other things, whether that be a standing grain crop that we we graze throughout the winter, or we defer grazing on mm-hmm. maybe a summer annual, and that's that's the way I think it's going to be feasible to do it in this part of the world okay yeah and that kind of leads us in to our next thing or popped into a snapchat group now a text group on the on the native guy you were added in basically <laughs> for all of these native questions that i was having and cody carr and nick cachetti who have been on you know you popped up as this native guy summer warm season natives i mean so what kind of natives are you know you wanting to incorporate um, you know, kind of just the the normal run of the bill natives are what I recommend for for people to get started with. So that's big blue stem, Indian grass, to a lesser extent, little blue stem. I just don't think it makes the tonnage that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm gonna talk to a farmer and try to get them started, those are the ones to go with because you've got herbicides on your side, you've got ease of establishment on your side, and that's the biggest boundary I've found is just if it doesn't work. Straight out of the gate, people say it's a failure and they won't adopt it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, you know, we've got a lot of options. Switchgrass is going to outperform about anything you put it up against tonnage-wise. Mm-hmm. If you cut it right, if you're using it for hay, if you graze it right, you know, you've got good quality. Eastern gamma grass, no one's ever going to argue that that's an excellent forage. Um, you know, and in our systems that are pretty fescue-dominated, both of those fit pretty well they kind of follow that growth curve pick up where fescue leaves off and 
you can stretch out into the summer a little bit more on eastern game of grass or switchgrass. Switch okay. Yeah, but then thinking about you know what do I actually feed in the summertime? Mm-hmm. It's hard to beat you know big blue stem and Indian grass and just yeah. the way they fill that summer slump that you have with our cool seasons. Mm-hmm. And how do you go about uh, getting those established? One thing we've noticed with pursuing a- adaptive grazing, you know, rest and grazing densities, those have all allowed natives to express themselves. Grass species, but, you know, we're seeing clumps here and there. You know, we're not yeah. seeing, you know, oh, we switched our adaptive grazing and now we're 30% big blue stem or, you know, we're like, we switched adaptive grazing and now we have a cluster of big blue stem on five acres. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, that's that's one of those things. Uh, a gentleman that's done a lot of prairie restoration once told me that once you establish what you want, manage it that way. Because if mm-hmm. you change something, it's going to change. So he was talking about planting wildflowers and native grasses, mm-hmm. talking about you know gr- whether he grazes it or he puts lime down, something will change. Yeah. Well, when we think about our grazing systems, you kind of just hit on that. It wasn't a big change, but you changed something, mm-hmm. and now you're seeing these native grasses come in. So, you know, setting back whatever you've got that you don't want, giving them an advantage, whether that be burning it, whether that be throwing out some extra seed. Mm-hmm. And then just running with whatever keeps them in the system is is the way to way to go. Yeah, that's interesting. Like we unwillingly or un not unwillingly, but not necessarily noticing what we've been doing. So we did a bunch of super intense grazing the past twenty twenty one twenty twenty. You know, with a b- bunch of poly wire grouped up, grouped the cows to some pretty high densities mm-hmm. through the summer months, and then this year what we did was we allowed them to have just bigger paddocks and bigger areas when we weren't pushing them hard. We saw some better, you know, animal health. Mm -hmm. um, And we saw quite a bit of natives expressing themselves. And it looked like by not pushing them that hard, you know, we had just uh, them eating the top third percent, you know, and kind of keeping them vegetative. So, I mean... That all observations all need to be all need to be noted. Yeah, but well, you kind of hit on something interesting there. You know, if we are running, you know, let's say tall fescue, and we're grazing it the way fescue can be grazed, mm-hmm. you're going to probably overgraze any of those natives that are coming in. Yeah. So by running a little less, you know, injury on that grass plant mm-hmm. by rotating quicker or whatever it is then, you know, taking that top third instead of taking that half that you probably could get away with, Yeah, you're leaving a lot more, you know, potentially you're leaving half of that big blue stem plant that came back where you would have been taking three quarters of it before. Yeah. So that lets it at least survive in the system. Yeah, and just by, even if it didn't go to seed per se that year, I mean, that plant's still going to be back next year, and maybe we could put a little fence around it or a cage, something to allow it to go to seed. I mean, or is it better to keep? You know, taking that top third. You know, I would say, you know, that top third rule is probably a good one to get you get you started just to see what the potential is, what could come in. Mm-hmm. But I love chaos in a grazing system, so maybe there's a year that that patch doesn't get grazed until it's made seed. You know, yeah. it's just always always trying to keep nature on her toes because if we get complacent, then that's how we end up with a monoculture of something is it's what can survive under our 
our system. Yeah, monocultures, right? Fescue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The uh, well, I guess that kind of brings me to a, a study I was wanting to ask you about. So my experience with the Wardak Farm was, uh, uh, I guess it was when I worked for the government. It, I think it was around 2016, 2017. Uh, I went back then, you know, I was going to all these events basically to, to learn, yeah. right? which is why they're hosted. So went down to the Wardak farm and there was a study being done at the time about roller crimping fescue to decrease endophytes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they are presenting and, uh, you know, they were having some of the side, not side effects, but whatever they, you know, they were noticing things happening you know from a plant standpoint and you know from a surrounding standpoint so one couple of the things that they were talking about was you know when we roller crimped uh fescue seed heads right it decreased the end of fight you know then they kind of glossed over the fact that you know they said also it increased tonnage and decreased uh, pressure from weeds but everybody was so focused on the end of fight side that no one you know, was talking about the fact that they increased tonnage yeah, and that they also decreased weed pressure. I mean, and then so that kind of stuck with my mom, uh, stuck in my mind and was thought about it for a few days. And then I reapproached the people that were giving that presentation and I was like, hey, you know, the biggest point, I think we missed it. It wasn't that we decreased the endophyte, you know, because that can be... S- you know, managed yeah. other ways. But it was the fact that we increased the amount of forage being grown plus the decrease in weed pressure. But no one ever pursued that anymore. Has anything else been done to that? Not that I'm aware of and not at Wardak. Um, you know, but that is that is uh, an interesting observation of just kind of how, you know, extension research projects go. Mm-hmm. And we, how's that? We are... Doing research, we are doing demonstrations, really, um, but we don't have the budget to take that through to a published paper. Mm-hmm. But we're there to do something and get somebody that does have that budget, whether that's someone on campus, someone at another institution, to basically pick that up and run with it. Because, yeah, if I can run a roller crimper across the field and get more tonnage produced, why would I not do that? Yeah, and why would we not pursue it? But exactly. It comes down to funding i guess it comes down to the dollar you know if we don't have enough funding or if you know there's not a uh, enough research or not enough interest to back that research then it doesn't happen which is kind of unfortunate you know because there's a lot of interesting things a lot of observations that could be turned into research projects and um, i think we lose out by not not being able to follow those Mm -hmm. and do you think some of that has to do with kind of the mainstream conventional type mindset of a university yeah so you know some of it is just you know everything is grant funded so Mm -hmm. you pick what you know is going to get that grant so that you can basically get the uh get the money to do your research and you can come up with a good product and that product is is knowledge for you know the farmer but it really limits us on how much out-of-the-box stuff we can get. Because mm-hmm. if you say, I'm going to go and, 
you know, plant sunflowers to graze all winter long, mm-hmm. somebody might give you money for that. But if you say, I'm going to spray a herbicide on fescue to try to reduce seed heads, probably two or three people are going to give you money. Yeah. So it comes down to you can get a little bit outside of the box, but you can't really, you know, throw the box away when it comes to the way research runs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you, being part of a university farm, do you see it trending more towards grazing and regenerative, or are you kind of in this little bubble down here on this farm kind of separated and you're just running and doing whatever you want type a little bit of both so we're slowly trending that way you know we've got some some really good minds that are kind of going that way harley nowman definitely thinks outside of the box and some things Mm -hmm. um but then you know on the second half of that yeah um i'm not really doing a whole lot of research projects you know i don't have uh don't have professors coming down and doing research. I do for a couple of things, but not over the whole farm like you'd see in some of the uh, research farms that are a little closer to campus where, you know, it's almost a fight to get space out there in some of them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a little bit of it. When I say I want to try to take it hay-free, rely on more, uh, you know, more stored forages and stuff like that, that's just all self-starting because you got you to gotta make the change at some point so somebody will pick it up as a research project. Yeah. But if that's not necessarily what that's being conveyed in the classroom, I mean, who's it, who's going to pick that up? Well, I guess the way to think of that is this is, you know, this is the spark that starts the fire eventually. Yeah. You know, it's got to start somewhere. So I think that research farm in particular, Wardak, is the perfect place to do it. Yeah. You know, I've got a, got a captive cow herd, so to speak, so I can graze things as hard or as light as I want. Mm-hmm. I can plant whatever I want, and if it works out, if I can convince someone on campus to look at it as a research project, then that becomes a classroom material. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds pretty neat. I mean, and a lot of the stuff you're doing down there, does it revolve around grazing, or is it there are like other aspects, trees, forest, agroforest, what all yeah. does the farm provide? How many acres? Yeah, so we're uh, somewhere between... 1,200 and 1,300 acres total on the farm. There's about 260 that is uh, that is uh, open. Um, and then we're running 60 cow-calf pairs and then 20 replacement heifers. I'd like to get that number up to about 75 um, pairs. Where I started back in March, we were running 93, I believe, head, and then had about 15 to 20 replacement heifers. Um the issue that I was running into is I had some hoof problems. So that back right foot on every one of them that I culled was starting to corkscrew. So it was pretty easy to pick those girls out. Mm-hmm. But um, so if I've run a pretty heavy cull. It worked out this summer. We had a drought. So having lower numbers kind of helped me carry through there. Um, but that's really, I think, where where I'm going to probably keep it is no more than 75 just to try to try to maintain that that uh, hay-free mentality. Yeah, and so, like, the calling, you, you know, yeah. the back right foot corkscrewing. I mean, who is somebody telling you? Do, do you have to go to a board to figure out what to call? Is that all on you? So that part's all on me. Um, you know, that's 
just kind of my own background in cattle and, you know, consulting with the folks I need to consult on when it gets, you know, beyond the easy calls of, mm-hmm. oh, you know, she doesn't walk right, she, you know, slipped a calf, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it gets to something beyond that, oh, yeah, no, I reach out, whether it's to a vet, somebody else in the university, some of our livestock specialists, but um, we do have an advisory board. They are great to work with. They're, you know, very supportive of most everything that goes on out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing that I I guess I, I didn't realize to start with is they do keep you grounded a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because they are progressive, but they still are the cow-calf producers. Um, some of them run stalkers. So getting too outside of the box, they kind of keep you grounded and keep you pointing that direction that still is going to provide education for the normal farmer because mm-hmm. that's what they are. Because I can do all these things and, you know, I can have a regenerative approach. I can be as sustainable as I want. But if it's not going to be adopted ever, it's really probably not worth doing. Mm-hmm. It's worth doing to an extent, but I can't turn the whole 1,300-acre farm into, you know, something that a normal farmer isn't going to do. Yeah. I can turn a five-acre paddock into it and show how it works mm-hmm. year after year. And the next year, I can maybe go 10 acres. Eventually, that becomes the norm for the farm, but can't just do it all out of the gate. Yeah. Um, kind of circling back to the cow herd. Yeah. So who, uh, picks, uh, like your breeding stock or, or bulls or, you know, things like that. You know, we talk about, well, back when I was at school, you know, we were running the Excel sheet on bull EPDs to tell Mm -hmm. me which bull's going to have the biggest calves, you know, are you buying from, you know, you know, seed stock producers based off of EPDs or, or what are you you buying? Yes, I mean, to an extent, we're following that model, um, you know, because there, there is some validity in it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to what do I need on the farm? And can I go to somebody that's going to be able to ride that? So, mm-hmm. you know, just got two new bulls. I needed heat tolerance because I don't have enough shade. And it really became evident this summer in 100 degree temperatures. So mm-hmm. that's the direction I went. I said, I need calving ease, I need heat tolerance, and that's what I found. And are you finding those bulls? Are you working with other specialists, like other extension people? Yeah, so, um, you know, we've, in the past, we've used, um, you know, our state beef repro guy, Jordan Thomas, he's been good to work with. Um, This last group that I've got, um, you know, our other, um, a... uh, Ag business specialist with extension, Rachel Hopkins. She had a relationship with uh, with a farm that grows pretty good uh, bulls, and I said, "Go pick me out the two you think I need," and that worked pretty well. Do you want to share where and who, or or is it you can't? Um, yeah, I'll share. Um, so these last two I got uh, came from Oldie Cattle Company. Um, so far they look pretty good. I've only had them four days, but yep. they were they fit the mold for what I needed. And what are they? Uh, so they are red Angus centipole crosses. Um, okay. One has a little bit more centipole than the other. He looks great. I'm hoping that'll bring the uh, the heat tolerance that I need into the herd. Mm-hmm. And you've ha- have they out with the cows now? Yep. So they're in with a group of heifers and first calf cows that uh, I synced. So they should be cycling hopefully this weekend. So hopefully I'll get a pretty good uh, conception rate on that. Okay. And I'm going to ask, so... If you're trying to put heat tolerance back into your herd, right? Mm-hmm. So what? Why the fall breeding though? 
So the fall breeding, just because I'm breeding whenever it's not hot. So I can get a better chance of actually getting cows to stick than if I've got bulls and cows out there in June when it's 100 degrees like it was this year. Mm -hmm. You're just setting yourself up for either low sperm motility or just cows to not be cycling correctly. Do you think you're going to take it to spring or are you going to leave it as a fall herd? The way that my forages are set up for now, it makes more sense for fall because I can run dry cows on a little bit lower quality forage in the summertime. And then right now I have a lot of stockpile. I've got a lot of pretty decent stored forage. Mm -hmm. The quality's there, so it makes sense to have them lactating right now. Yeah, if you can graze through the winter, right? If I can graze through the winter. That's when the fall breeding makes sense through fescue. Right. Yeah, if in you've my got, opinion, it, it, yes, and if you've got fescue, I mean, having a fall breeding herd really matches it up well. If we're thinking about, you know, let's talk about an April calving herd. You know, they're going to reach peak lactation when you don't have any food out there for them. If you're solely on fescue, yeah, all, strictly fescue. Yeah, which is the majority of producers in Southern Missouri. They don't value the weeds that they have that really carry them through the summer. No, they don't, and. But with grazing implementation, right, those weeds become utilize, exactly. you know, utilizable, um, which, yeah, that's kind of interesting because we're seeing, I mean, we're April calving, mm-hmm. right? We're hitting our peak lactation in the summer, you know, ragweed, right? They're ragweed is the in. best forage that it, any given yeah, farm will have. <laughs> we're hitting peak lactation with ragweed on common, giant, and uh Lance Leaf, Lunsford, mm-hmm. whatever people want to call it. I mean, a lot of those are testing at, what, 20% crude protein, or is that too high? Uh, depending on, you know, time of season and just how old they are. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the beauty of, you know, common ragweed, especially in a grazing system. It will come up from April till October. So you potentially always have a good succulent six-inch tall ragweed for that cow to graze. Mm-hmm. It's not until you hit late August, whenever it's flowering, that it even dips below the quality of the tall fescue that it's probably growing in. Okay. And then what about uh, brome sedge, right? Because once that we hit that first pass of ragweed, right, then we've got brome sedge on. Yeah, so I mean that's... right behind it, vegetative. You know, that's the thing. It gets a bad, bad name. You know, we cut hay, we maybe mismanage a little bit, our phosphorus levels get low, we need lime, and we end up with a lot of brome sedge. The other way to look at that is, at least for a decent window through the summer, you've got good actively growing C4 forage. I mean, you've got a warm season grass that's utilizing poor ground, it's utilizing the heat of the summer, and it's pretty drought tolerant. Mm -hmm. I think we should utilize it more. You know, there's certain producers that I've worked with, um, you know, they manage for it. Um, One of them, Rachel Hopkins that I talked about, she manages for broom sedge. I've got some other producers in Crawford County, Missouri. They burn specifically to get more broom sedge because that's what's going to grow best on that particular acre, so it makes sense for them. <laughs> that is, that's wild. I mean, that is. I mean, and the gains you can get off of broom sedge if you're grazing it when it's green and active, I mean, really? it will outdo a lot of things just because it's, Pretty nutritious. I mean, getting two pounds plus gain per day is not unheard of. Off Rome sedge. Yep. Coming from an extension guy, right? <laughs> huh? Yes. <laughs> you might have to watch your back for a while. Yep. Yep. Gonna gonna watch my back because uh, <laughs> there goes my job. But uh, no, I mean the the trick I think you know in in all of this is just utilize what you have and 
really consider that weeds might be what's helping you a lot more than you think. Because, you know, if you look at the average farm in southern Missouri, they've got ragweed, they've got purple top. Mm-hmm. You know, purple top carries more animals through August than, than anything. Purple top. Is that the same as grease grass? Yep, it's grease oh, grass. Man. Uh, yeah. I really love that forage. Because as soon as you are absolutely completely done with your fescue, you know, it's dormant. Mm-hmm. There's your purple top. That's going to carry you through till the fescue starts growing again. I think that's why we're having seeing success. I mean, our breed back or breed up, you know, mm-hmm. it's not 90%, right? We've got, uh, as you saw, I mean, our cow herd is all over the place on a- animal age mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, trying to figure out what's working, what isn't, cu- culling heavy. But, I mean, this was one of our better years, even though this was probably our best year since we've been at it. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, like, heifer breed back or heifer, first cap, you know, heifers getting bred. But I think a lot of it has to do with our diversity got, you know, way better. Maybe. Well, I mean, that's that's the, the key. I mean, fescue has its place. The endophyte kind of limits that. But mm-hmm. if you have, you know, a novel endophyte fescue, then it fits a couple more places. But having the diversity is really what carries you through. Because if you only have one thing, something's going to happen to make it not work. So whether yeah. that's be a drought, whether it just be a bimodal growth curve like you see in fescue, where you grow in the spring, you grow in the fall, mm-hmm. you know, if you have the diversity to make up for where it lacks, then you really are setting yourself up for success. Yeah, with all the summer annuals and diversity. Yeah. Huh, yeah, and a, a note on ragweed though. Yeah, just circling back to it. I mean, ragweed when it's young will probably outdo most alfalfa you put it against. So from a protein content, from a protein TDN digestibility, I mean, it's it's up there. So when you compare a lot of our weeds, you know, not just ragweed, but you compare them to tall fescue throughout the growing season. Mm-hmm. You know, same time, same field, same place. Most of them, some in some way, some forage parameter, whether that be protein, whether that be digestibility, TDN, whatever it is, mm-hmm. most of them in some way are better. So, cool, if it can have better protein, better digestibility, your energy level's good, no one's going to argue that that isn't a better forage. Yeah. But even if it's more digestible and it doesn't have a toxin in it, that's probably still better. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Definitely. So, um. I mean, what other kind of forages are people overlooking? I mean, that was ragweed. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, to stay on the weed front, um, you know, cockleburr is actually pretty nutritious. Mm-hmm. Cows graze it pretty readily when it's young. Now, there can be some toxicity issues if you're making them eat the burrs because that has some, some different alkaloids in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, cows eat the heck out of it. Um, one thing... Uh, I've seen, heard people talk about, you know, yeah. what is the fact that, you know, it, ju- it seems like cows are eating cockleburs. It's very group, cow group specific, you know. Plants could look the same. Cows, yeah. you know, and you could have a couple rented farms and cockleburs uh, on each farm, but only a handful of cows are, you know, are eating those in, in set groups. Well, and that's, you know, that's that's actually a really interesting thing to jump off of. Eating weeds is a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some of it, you know, we can 
dive in deeper on it. We will, because I think it's really cool, just like natal conditioning. But, um, you know, you can teach a cow to eat anything. If we're, you know, forcing them to eat everything uniformly, like we get with management-intensive grazing, Mm -hmm. you know, they go after certain things more readily. Yeah. But, you know, you can do other methods, whether that be very intensive grazing, mob grazing, just making them eat it until they learn hey, this thing is actually an okay food. Um, you know, there's a method called the Australian spray graze technique. So they take sublethal rates of like 2,4-D, some of the phenoxy herbicides. They'll spray it on weeds, and as soon as they start to twist and epinasty that way that it starts to kill, mm-hmm. they'll turn on livestock, they'll eat it, they learn that that weed can actually be eaten, they develop a taste for it, and then there you are. Because as it starts to twist, what it's doing is it's breaking down the cell wall. So you basically get a re-release of all the sugars that are stored at cellulose. So then it gets more palatable. So that's an easy way. I've uh, worked people through spraying molasses on weeds. Yeah, I do that. I yeah, did and that's, that. I mean, that's an easy way, you know, if you're averse to herbicides or, you know, you know, obviously having an animal eat that herbicide is... You know, that's kind of up to interpretation on where that falls on the, the health spectrum. Yeah, but or in the grass-fed, uh, grass-finished, well, I'm not going to spray herbicide. <laughs> eh, that's not part of it. <laughs> Grass can still have herbicide on it. Um, but, you know, doing molasses, doing sugar water, that yeah. can be a, a good way forward. And sometimes the way I've done it on my own cattle um, is you go out, you spray it, they lick it all off, you just keep spraying that same weed, and then... Mm-hmm eventually they take a bite yeah we would spray like a we'd find like a little cluster of cows and then we'd spray a a path you know through the grass to the plant and then we would just coat the plant and yeah they'd follow it with their noses and then they'd end up all around like a rose bush or a blackberry bush and i mean pretty neat now we've got uh uh, cows and stuff that some of the plants they seek out first are locusts or blackberries um this year we were seeing some, you know, we've we've been seeing Cerecia expand into more mm. paddocks. And uh, one thing I was noticing is uh, all of our fall or all of our springborn calves, you know, so they were three to four months at the time, maybe closer to three. Uh, ever when we would move into a new past pasture, all those springborn calves were going to the Cerecia first. Mm-hmm which I found very interesting. They were eating it out of fence rows. They were, you know, working on those patches while all, you know, the other cows were, you know, the main herd was just going about eating ragweed, stuff like that. But those calves were just hunting up the Cerecia first, which was, I guess, a sign that something's working or something is. Yeah, I mean, something's working. They haven't figured out that they don't have to eat it, maybe like your other cows have. Mm -hmm. Um um, and you know, the Cerecia is pretty decent quality feed, especially at certain times. It's just yeah. once you get a little age on it, you get more lignified, you get that tannin load a little too high for cattle, but maybe not for small ruminants. That's when they turn off of it. But, um, you know, it's an interesting observation. And I mean, that's the kind of thing we need to pay attention to because you can make choices on who you keep as a, as a cow, you know, if they're more apt to eat it, she's got a better spot in my herd because, she takes stuff that's unusable and turns it into beef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I try to be pretty intentional about that kind of kind of those kind of observations, or just observations of the cow mm-hmm. herd and as a whole. 
use an app, you know, that tracks pasture movements. I can take yeah. pictures and stuff like that. One thing I noticed this year was uh, our ragweed, I guess with being so dry, it seemed to have come on maybe three to four weeks earlier mm-hmm. and started to, you know, into the, like the maturity phase earlier. And so we cha- we had to really change our grazing from when we were supposed to or conditioned to watch for it you know and you know we had to turn turn right around and we had to you know head right to it and get it grazed off and that's kind that's where I showed you the milo that we had uh stomped into the ground and then uh the fescue stand actually in it looked fairly fairly it still looks pretty good yeah yeah and so that was all solid lance leaf ragweed before we well and you know, when we think about like grazing weeds, um, you know, some of it's learned, some of it just cow herds eat them, some cows don't. When I was doing my master's work, I was looking at uh, soil nutrient to weed interactions and also did a part on uh, the forage value of weeds to cattle. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were on, I guess, 63 total herds. We took some data on how long or how often things had been grazed and some cow herds eat everything. Others that are, you know, management-wise is pretty similar. They don't. It's just a, a weird learned thing until you teach them. Yeah. And, you know, that learned bit, you know, really goes a long way because you can take one cow out of one herd. Eventually, she'll teach the rest it's okay to eat. There have been some studies in New Zealand that show that, where they'll take a cow that eats musk thistle, put it in with a herd that doesn't, and eventually those other cows start to figure out, I can eat this. Yeah. And then that's that's where impact is made. It is, yeah. I've seen it uh a little bit with our cows, but I mean, like the whole extent. I mean, this is all still pretty new, you know. Yeah. We're pretty new into this journey in the scheme of things. And you're pretty passionate about natives, native yeah. flowers, native plants. I mean, where did that all come from? Yeah, so um when I was, I don't know, probably 11, my great uncle had uh, had some stuff dozed out, decided he didn't want his fescue horse pastures that he wasn't using anymore, and recreated a prairie. Mm-hmm. And that was very influential, um, kind of sparked my love of plants. I grew up south of Rolla, Missouri, and they have a uh, pretty good engineering school, so that's what I thought I wanted to do. I liked building stuff, and that was the direction I was going to take, and then between uh, that prairie experience and then some pretty influential uh, ag teachers kind of figured out I like plants a whole lot more than I like math. So that was that was good to learn at that point. But um, back to that prairie, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting. I helped plant it. I've helped burn it every year since then. So, I mean, I think this will be my 17th burn we're getting ready to do here in another month or so um, on that property. And... It's, it's just been fascinating to me, returning plants to the natural environment and then returning, you know, the disturbances that, that harbor more of those types of plants. So on that particular property, I think it's 40 acres is what he's planted. Mm-hmm. Started with a 35 species mix, had a couple of the native warm season grasses, had kind of the basic wildflowers, you know, I think like prairie blazing stars, some mm-hmm. of the pale purple cone flower. That was it. You know, nothing too wild. And, uh, now I go out there every couple of weeks, 
he and I, we uh, walk around. I've taken some kind of conservative approaches to um, estimating how many plants are actually there. Yep. You know, haven't haven't taken the time. It's one of those things I always say I'm going to do, and then I just run out of time. But to actually do a, a good survey and run transects and figure it out. But, I mean, I would say they're up over 300 species. Of Missouri native. Of Missouri natives. And, and that's been in, you know, 15, 16 years of just – Having minimal disturbance to get them established, you know, had a pretty light bulldozing operation, and then broadcast 35 species, and the rest of it has all just been burning and managing to get native species to stay. Does that incorporate animal integration or or not, really? It doesn't, um, just because he's not set up for it. There's Mm -hmm. no fences. Um, Part of it was cut for hay one time, just as a a matter of disturbance and chaos, Mm -hmm. which, you know, other than not having hoof action replicated you know taking off in a very severe grazing event mm-hmm. um so we have the seed bank left you know yeah. obviously he had 200 and some species come back just by burning and do you know how many missouri natives plants there are you know like are there is there a thousand roughly oh i mean uh, i mean i i don't know an exact hundred seems like a <laughs> Like a lot, but so I, I don't know an exact is. number, but I mean, if you look at like flora of Missouri, which is the you know Missouri botanist Bible, basically, mm-hmm. it's three like nine hundred page books. It's a volume series, and you know there's a dozen species on every page. So I mean, the math adds up pretty quick. Yeah, I yeah, I had not. A, I mean, I am ignorant when it comes to all this. I find it very fascinating as we're starting to see different plants come in, you know, like the prairie blazing star, mm-hmm. you know, and what is it? Uh, oh, it's like a purple vining plant that's got some thorn on it. You touch it and the leaves curl. Oh, uh, sensitive briar. Sensitive briar. Yep. Got a lot of that coming up. And that in makes our great rack. forage. Really? Yeah. And even with all the spines on it and stuff. So I had that same thought, <laughs> you know, this can't be good. But if you think about it, I mean, as rough as like a cow's tongue is. Uh-huh. That's rougher than the skin on our hands, so they're going to take that, and those spines aren't going to bother them at all. Yeah, that because <laughs> we got a lot of that coming back on our ridge tops mm-hmm. with uh, that are heavy in the Lansley or Lunsford ragweed or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, but no, I mean when it comes to like native species, you know, we've got the seed bank there. Mm-hmm. We just have weeds on top of them. Yeah, and so that fire, that disturbance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were 11, burned it 17 times, you said. Yep. Uh, what What's that equivalent to once? Some part of that 40 acres gets burned every year. Every year. So probably 90% of it gets burned every year, which is not the norm for prairie restoration. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's what works. And kind of what I was saying earlier, if you have a a system and you keep that system, you will keep the plants in it. If mm-hmm. you change it, it'll go away. So at random, you know, if we choose a spot not to burn in a given year, usually the species composition looks very different mm-hmm. the next year. Sometimes the plants are still there, but sometimes they don't flower. And is that all a warm season prairie or or like you burning it off and then your cool season prairie grasses are coming in? Or is Missouri typically a warm season? Um, You know... So, I guess to answer the first part of that, the, the prairie itself that I'm talking about is is predominantly warm season dominated by, 
you know, the, the grasses. Mm-hmm. There are some of the wild rye species that are coming in. There's a pretty good sedge component, mostly the carex species, not too many of the cypress species. But um, there is a, a cool season component. And that is, they have all come in. None of those were planted. Mm-hmm. So they found where they wanted to be. You know, so that seed bank was there or, you know, some way they've come in if they weren't already in the soil. And there's a shady spot if there's a wet hole or whatever it is, that's where they're living. You know, even though it's a pretty dry, rough ridge top. Mm-hmm. So then if we think about, you know, Missouri as a whole, we're in that transition zone. So, you know, from a improved or a, you know, introduced, I'll say introduced forage perspective, that's why we can grow fescue. That's why we can grow Indian grass. That's why parts of the state can grow Bermuda grass because we've kind of got the environment where everything can work good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we think about what Missouri looked like kind of pre-settlement, we were a very fire-dominated landscape. Most of those fires were set intentionally by the native peoples. Um but you still had a good mix of, of warm and cool season grasses. But it's hard to it's hard to envision, you know, because I still want to, you know, this is my cool season field, this is my warm season field. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to envision, you know, you might have had 1,000 acres that was dominant in, you know, big blue stem and Indian grass, and then maybe there was a ravine over here that was nothing but, you know, Virginia wild rye. It's just everything – had no constraints, so you could pick wherever you wanted to grow if you're a plant, basically. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you'd find your niche. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, like you, with your cool season paddock or your warm season mm-hmm. paddock, it's those are f- relatively easy to manage. It's when they yes. start, you know, where your cool and your warm season paddocks are your same paddock. You know, that's when it seems like the management needs to – to be changed and sometimes it it appears that you could set one way or the other backwards by intensities and you know that's I guess that if we think about like a landscape perspective if there's no fences if elk and deer and bison can just run wherever they want Mm -hmm. they're never going to really overgraze anything so if we're doing that on our farm you know if we have a mix of, of cool and warm season grasses, native or introduced, or a mix of, of both, you know, if you manage for one, you'll get rid of the other. So that's mm-hmm. where becoming a good manager of just growing grass and grazing is super important because yeah. you can do one without the other and still be fairly successful. Mm-hmm. But to actually make that work where you're running them both, I've seen it a couple of times, um, you know, a mixture of switchgrass and, and fescue, has worked really well. Um, there's a producer by Rolla has, uh, let's see, what does he have? It's a uh, big blue, Caucasian blue stem, Indian grass, and fescue. Mm-hmm. And he grazes the fescue a little bit hard, then he grazes it like a normal warm season field. Mm-hmm. There at uh, Wardak, when I first got started, I helped plant a uh, two-acre paddock. It was kind of just an odd one, so they let us play with it, into uh, big blue stem, little blue stem, and Indian grass. We did the single spray technique where you just go in, you spray glyphosate and mazepic, and then you drill in. So that works really well. You can get stuff established, but if you don't come back in with, you know, another application of something to kill the fescue out, it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a good thing. 
because, you know, you can have some real productivity there because then you do have something growing, you know, nine, ten months of the year Mm -hmm. between the fescue, between the the warm season grasses. This summer, you know, I took it over in March. That was one of the first fields I turned out into when I still had 93 head and all their calves just because I had that mentality that I want to hammer this fescue so that I don't have to have to worry about it in my native grasses that are in there. Yeah. Well, that worked out really well because I set it back just enough, but I didn't, I didn't overgraze it. And I set out to overgraze it, and I'm glad I didn't mm-hmm. because I set it back just enough that whenever I got off of it, I let it rest. Everything came back up. It's growing great. I turned in on my natives at the end of May, and, you know, they were about knee high and grazed them down to eight inches, and then the drought hit in June. Well, I have Bermuda grass back there, and I had this back there. And some of the paddocks um, only have fescue. So that system, I think there's 17 paddocks. That was the one I had to keep coming back to because it was the only thing that was growing. The Bermuda grass stopped, and it kept growing. And I think that's pretty telling of how bad my little pocket of drought was. Yeah. Because usually the Bermuda will just keep on going. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was grazed. And then about the third time I was in there, I started looking through my notes and said, i got to keep better track of this because – I could see there was something going on. Um, it just kept performing. And we had very minimal rain. Um, that's the other good thing about being a research center. I've got a weather station, so I can go back and see how much rain I actually got to justify this. Mm-hmm. Um, but long story short, um, by the time I had my grazing school in September, I'd been off of it for a couple of weeks trying to let it rest, the warm season's rest for the winter. And uh, at that point, we uh, – when I did the math, looked at how many cows had been on it. So it started with those 93, had some coals, got down to 71. Then eventually I was running a heifer group back there. But basically I was in there about every 21 to 28 days. and That was for two to three days at a time for that size herd on two acres. So the math equates out to about 621 cow days per acre. And the only way I could do that is I basically had full production of both a cool season and a warm season. Yeah. And so – Going forward, I mean, that sounds like that's a pretty good mix to yeah. replicate and maybe try to, to manage for. Yeah, so that's, you know, I'm just happy I kept records or else I probably wouldn't believe it myself even though I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try to repeat it this next year. I'm going to try to plant some natives into fescue and just see if I can't get some more paddocks like that because if it can be that productive, I think that's the direction we need to take it. We're not going to get rid of fescue. It still has a place, but if we can make that field more productive, then you know, that's the way we need to go. Yeah, I think fescue is a great place. I mean, endophyte or endophyte free, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think a lot of that can be just switched. It's it's more the cow yeah, cow and genetics than uh, endophyte problem. I mean, it has a little bit, but. Well, and if you think about, like, this system, you know, we're grazing it in the spring before endophyte really becomes that big of a problem yeah and And then we're grazing it basically just the natives and they can preferentially graze Mm -hmm. yeah they take just a little bit of brown if they want it yeah to help balance a diet um well that brought up a few things i'd like to to touch on i mean one was you talked about warm season rest Mm -hmm. going into winter um another thing was your heifer group and how those are developed yeah and then, um, but let's start off first with uh, how you're planning on 
uh, planting, you know, you said you were hoping to add some more warm seasons into your fescue mix. What What's that going to look like? How are you going to prep? Yeah. Um, so I guess there's, there's two ways that I've kind of, you know, working with farmers, doing a little bit of my own place, and then uh, the stuff I've been able to do here at Wardak is, um, you know, the traditional method is, I guess the new traditional method is, you go through, you spray, you either plant a smother crop, you spray it again, then you plant. Um, that still has a place. It still works really well. If we're in a hurry and we just want it to work, doing that single spray in April, kill out the existing vegetation, put in a mazapic, if the grasses are tolerant. Not every warm season grass is. Um, that's a quick way to get them established. So if I just need a pasture, that's what I'm doing because – I can go in, I can no-till drill it. I have a drill there. Don't let that be a limiting factor because about every county in Missouri has a drill. Yeah. So you can dr- you can go rent one. It's worth doing because you're really hedging your bets on that. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't address what I'm really there to do, and that's to come up with a method to help a farmer plant it. Because, you know, and the time that I've spent trying to get people to grow this stuff and – that's been longer than my time at extension. That's the the biggest thing is they don't want to kill out the existing vegetation. They don't want to go rent a drill. And then they want to be able to put the three point broadcast spreader on the back and Mm -hmm. have it be a success. Yeah. Yeah. Like they want to use the tools they've got. They want to use the tools they've got and know how to use. That's a very good point. Um, You know, and conventional knowledge says that won't work. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say that it's going to be difficult to make it work. It's not that it can't, but I Mm -hmm. think you're got to be a little creative with that. So that's, uh, that's on my to-do list because I'm going to try a couple of different ways this fall. Um, you know, one of them, I'm just going to drill into fescue. I'm going to do it in the winter. I'm going to do it in the uh, spring. You'll get some success. I've done that before. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to get a full stand, but if you're just looking for a mix stand anyway, that's probably all right. You know, cause that I'm running a mix of uh, big blue and Indian grass at about 10 to 12 pounds per acre. You're wasting a little bit of seed, but you still get something. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones I'm looking at, and this is what I think is going to address those issues is how can I spread it broadcast and make it work? Well, I think some of that is, you know, on some of the stuff I've got sitting in stockpile, can I save that until the very end, you know, get wet in the spring, broadcast it, and then almost pug it in? You know, is that going to work? Because that's going to injure my fescue. I'm going to have some more weeds, but I'm also getting seed to soil contact that I would be getting with a drill otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, and I talked about how I don't want to feed hay, but I still think there's hay is a good tool like we talked about, and I think maybe I can incorporate some bale grazing, broadcasting out seed, bale grazing on top of it, you know, that area with all the trash where the bale actually set, it might not come up there, but the hoof areas around it, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, is there something to be said about hoof impact? Let's say, you know, spring flush, right? Mm-hmm. You're normally around these parts, 21st of March, you yeah. know, you're starting to, we are, you know, we're starting to get out and just fast movements. Yeah. 
uh, broadcasting grounds pretty soft. I mean, could you broadcast then maybe follow with some animal impact behind it? Well, that's that's one thing I'm gonna gonna try to experiment with a little bit is, you know, we all have a sacrifice pasture. Can mm-hmm. you just have that sacrifice pasture be where you put it? Yeah, yeah. There's and changing that year from year because yeah, I mean every but you know there's not enough disturbance happening maybe that's not the right phrase but uh we do farmers seem to get into kind of this mindset of doing it you know this is our wintering pasture this is our you know this is our turnout pasture and this is our hayfield we don't do a good enough job at mixing all that up yeah i mean have you done much research or do you know much about like some of the work being done on i guess grasses being and plants being kind of trained to I don't know. I mean, I've heard. Yeah. <sighs> they're trained to, uh, you know, kind of patterns, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not so much the individual plant, but it's the system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can almost look at it, you know, kind of like you said, you you have that pasture you turn out into every spring or you have your winter pasture or you have a hay field. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just talk about a hay field for a second. What do you see in hay fields that you don't see in the rest of your farm? a giant mat of yellow foxtail. That's because that's adapted to that system where come June, sometimes July, all of the biomass gets removed and then it gets sunlight. So that's what lives there. Yeah. So we don't see that in other places because we're at least leaving some cover. So it never gets that, that red and far red light down to the soil surface to initiate germination. Mm -hmm. So the system adapts to that. You know, is that individual foxtail going to do it? No. Is it, if we do it for the next thousand years, is it? Probably it's going to evolve into, you know, whatever the new, you know, high-intensity yeah. grazing foxtail is. But, you know, that is, that that's a really good thing to think about whenever we're thinking of just farm management, grazing management. Don't do anything the same way more than once in a couple of years. Whether that's you turn out into a field, don't turn into that field next year. Or... You grazed one a little too heavy, maybe we give it a little bit longer rest. Or, you know, we really roll the dice, maybe we graze it heavy again and just see what comes up. Maybe we get more weeds, and if you're taking my point of view, you're getting a lot more good forage there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you're getting great forage, potentially. Yeah. But then you get to the point where your cows, you know, may not be adjusted, so then that's like your training field, right? Yeah. That's your field. Yeah, so it's all about looking at it. Uh, in a different way yeah look at it in a different way um the thing that i've told a couple of producers and i've kind of had to adopt this myself because um when you're a kid in high school and you plant popcorn in uh southern missouri on a couple acres people just expect you to do weird stuff and they kind of judge you a little bit for that Mm -hmm. you inspire some and you get judgment from others um whoever is telling you it won't work probably isn't paying your bills yeah so, you know, you got to do everything in an economical way to make sure it pays for itself, but don't be afraid to utilize what you got and be different. Yeah, that's where kind of this, uh, the power of the herd or the mob, Yeah, you know, that's, that. I mean, that's a, you got the cows or you got the sheep or you got, yeah. the, you know, you have the animals. I mean, we, we've been doing, uh, uh, we even tried it with chickens, you know, chicken tractors, and then we were doing, uh, kind of cover crop screenings so we were having a bunch of warm season 
annuals coming up behind our chickens and then that mat that our broilers and a chicken tractor were making mm-hmm. you know we were growing pumpkins and squash and you know all sorts of weird weird plants behind it behind our chicken tractor so i mean animals are a powerful tool you're making yeah. you know you've got them there to make money you might as well use them to yeah. to uh and you know experiment with yeah and i mean you know, there's that old saying that, you know, you're a grass farmer and you, you sell grass instead of the beef and whatnot. But, you know, really, I guess the way I look at it is I want a good cow that matches my system. But most of my system is just I want to grow better grass. Mm-hmm. And part of that's just I don't have I'm not an animal scientist. I'm a forage scientist. So grass is what gets me going. But if I can have a cow work to make that field better. Yeah. You know, she's added value to herself beyond just whatever calf she could raise. Yep. Well, um, well, well that we could take this either way. I mean, we still have the two questions I want to circle back to is maybe we could touch on the, the warm season rest first. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned. Yeah. So what is that? Um, yeah. So, you know, everything expends energy. So if we think about a... Uh, a cool season plant, it's kind of got it set up where it's growing right before it hits fall mm-hmm. or hits winter and it stops growing. So we don't think about it that much in those. So if, you know, we're on predominantly cool season grasses, it's not something we really have to do. But if you're on a warm season, whatever warm season that is, whether it's introduced, whether it's native, there comes a time you've got to get off of it. And that's just so it can build up some carbohydrates so it can actually have something to overwinter. Because that's the name of the game. If you have stored carbohydrates, you can come out of the ground quicker, you can grow quicker in the, in the spring whenever you get the conditions. So if we overgraze, if we don't leave enough of a, a stubble height, basically, on our warm season grasses, then really we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure in the spring just because whenever it comes time for them to grow – if they don't have that advantage, that mm-hmm. weed next to it, whether that weed's ragweed or fescue, is going to take off and grow and outgrow them. So then you've really set yourself back until it has the conditions where it can do better than those weeds. So, you know, the thing most people are probably familiar with is like alfalfa. You know, you got to stop cutting and grazing alfalfa at a certain point. You know, that's all going to depend on where you're at when that time is, but we'll say middle of September that's a good rule of thumb for most of our native warm season grasses too is get off of them middle of September, no later than the end of September, at least in Missouri. Um, because you want to let them grow as much as they can before they get a killing frost. Mm-hmm. Now, after the killing frost, once there's no green in that field, you can do whatever you want to them. That's why burning works because we're not injuring the plant. Okay. So, you know, there's still some forage value there. Some species will be better than others. You know, the, Big blue, the Indian grasses, they're usually pretty low quality. Um, I've got a few tests that I've seen so far this fall on them, you know, people trying to graze them. You know, they were decent, you know, energy-wise, but the protein was just too low. I mean, the one field, it was like 4.8%. Mm-hmm. So you can supplement to make that up. Yeah. But if you had that mix, you know, let's say you had a cool season underneath it, you got the brown bite, you got the green bite. They can kind of do it themselves. Yeah. So, uh, let's say we've got, you know, kind of that 30% warm season, mm-hmm. 70% cool season pastures across the whole farm. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we that mid September we're starting to think about pulling them off, letting that warm season mm-hmm. gr- get as much growth on possible before the killing frost. Then we'll come back and start re- resuming our grazing. Yeah. Should we? Should it be suggested to kind of pull off dry lot and hay, or or maybe just kind of switch our grazing management? take the top thirds, fast movements, because at the same time, while you're trying to put all your growth on your warm seasons... You've got to keep cool, up with your cools. Yeah, your cool seasons are firing off. Yeah. Um, you know, I would love to see somebody have a 70-30 mix on their whole farm. I think that'd be awesome. But I think that really gives you the, the need that we still do need some diversity, you mm-hmm. know, because you've got the same system over the whole farm. So maybe you do have a, a pasture that's predominantly cool season, or you just manage one for cool season. You deal with the losses in the warm season for that one. Yeah. Cause they'll come back eventually. If you return to your other grazing, you know, whatever system that was. Um, but you know, that's where a little bit, of, a little bit of chaos in the system really goes a long way. Cause you know, you're going to favor some cool seasons. If you start grazing whenever those warm seasons need to rest, yeah. But that might not be a bad thing if you've got enough warm seasons in the first place. Yeah. So Which most farms don't. Yeah. So it's just basically changing, you know, your your grazing chaos. Yeah. You know, if we're going to start with pasture one right when we need to be growing our cool seasons and we got 10 paddocks in the next year, we might want to start with 10 and go backwards. And exactly. Then start with five and go. Yep. Okay. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I showed you that one little plot behind the house that mm-hmm. is kind of what I would my I would like to see our farm with. I mean, a lot of the warm season forbs and wildflowers, I mean, they weren't there at this time. Of and you can see the carcasses. I mean, I, I bet that's a pretty close representation of that 70-30. I mean, you had a good stand of fescue, but you had enough disturbance to keep some of the, you know, more sensitive wildflowers. I mean, you had blazing stars. Looks like you had some of the Rudbeckias in there. So, you know, that seems like a pretty good mix. Yeah. So just replicating that time being yeah. it, well, it was like one acre. You know, yeah. now we have to replicate it seven, eight hundred times. It's just time and effort. Yeah. Time. <laughs> if you got the time, effort, and money, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> well, we started with it. I mean, yeah, it's trying to figure out how to do it without, you know, mo- the money yeah. side. Yeah. You know, and I think some of that is uh, rely on the seed you've got. So whether that is, you know, you go pick a little bit by hand and throw it into the pasture next to it, or you let it just progressively creep along, because they'll do it eventually if you're managing the mm-hmm. grazing to fit that system, that system will re- pop up elsewhere. Um, you know, and seed is the the best thing we, we have, you know, as far as, our ability to change something. It's a great time to be planting native native plants because there's so many options available to us, whether that be seed houses that can sell us a bunch of stuff or, yep. you know, just the fact that we know how to grow things that we didn't last time, you know, the last 10, 20, 30 years. Because mm-hmm. you can go out and you can take 10 acres of that and, you know, go buy a couple hundred dollars worth of seed, get it started, or put an acre you know, every 10 acres, maybe that's how you creep that along and get that, that whole paddock to fill. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, in the springtime, when should we start managing for warm season expression? Like, Yeah, so I mean, if you've got both, um, you know, 
graze your cool seasons, you know, run them through pretty quick and kind of do like you do normally. And then I want to see you pull off probably in April, you know, late April, and then let those warm seasons come up, actually see that they're there. And then as soon as you see they're there, start managing it like a warm season field. So at that point, you know, the fescue that's underneath that big blue stem or whatever it is, that's a weed. Mm-hmm. Cows are going to eat it. They're going to get something out of it. But at that point, that's your big blue stem field. So we graze it down to eight inches. We let it grow. We graze it down to eight inches. Because even if we're doing that with our fescue as it kind of tails off mm-hmm. and uh, what would you say, April, May? Yeah. So as it tails off, eventually that big blue stem becomes that, the dominant species. Yeah, it'll outcompete it and then blow up. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know. When we talked about management, it does take a, a different level of management because you're not just going out there and saying, I've got 24 inches of grass, I want to take half of it. You're mm-hmm. saying, I have 24 inches of big blue, I don't care about the fescue. Yeah. You know, or you're at 12 inches. You're thinking, you know, take half, leave half, I can get down to six inches. Well, yeah. if it was solid fescue, you're good. You've left a pretty good residue there. A fescue's going to regrow, but you overgrazed the big blue. Yeah. So it's just switching your management. Yeah, it's a mindset, right? We, yeah. we turn out, or we don't necessarily turn out, you know. Yeah. We start managing for spring growth mm-hmm. around, normally it's around the 20th, 25th of March, right? Mm-hmm. We're hitting 10 to 15, 20 acres a day every 12 to 24 hours. And we'll make a couple laps around the farm. And then by that time, our cool seasons have got away from us where we're starting to build some biomass. You know, by the time we make, you know, 60 days of rotations, that's two passes. We're starting our third, you know, orchard grass, Timothy, you know, that stuff's orchard grass is in full bloom. Timothy's going to bloom. And, uh, you know, but at that time, we've already mismanaged for our warm season expression. Exactly. But, you know, I think that's where when we think of this diversity that, you know, in one way, shape, or form, every farmer's chasing. Um, you know, maybe that's more warm seasons in the mix. So mm-hmm. you don't have as big of a flush. The grasses you got are growing as much as they can, but fescue isn't covering the whole, you know, 100-acre paddock. It's covering just 50% yeah. of that maybe. Yeah, because those cool seasons, right, once they're starting to go to the seed heads back to where, you know, where it's just talking, that's got to pretty much be what I'm managing height-wise for the remainder of the summer into the growing season. You know, and the other thing, you know, this management for it, and there's some research out there looking at, like, sun hemp that has been planted into fescue and looking at the canopy temperature underneath it of Mm -hmm. the fescue. That's lower. So if we can keep a canopy above a cool season, sometimes we can stretch that growing season out a little bit longer just because it's not overheated. You know, it hasn't surpassed that 86 degrees or so whenever our C3s just really shut off. Mm -hmm. So that can stretch us out a little farther too, and maybe we do have some more of our our cool seasons, you know, into June when normally we're thinking, oh, it's set seed. It's pretty well worthless now. And is that something that can be broadcasted, or do we have to rent a drill every time? Um, sun hemp? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
depends on who you ask and where you're at. <laughs> so I have had very good luck drilling it in. Yeah. Um, and you can get by with pretty low amounts. So 20 pounds per acre, just drilling it into a living fescue sod has worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other folks have broadcast it. Harley Nauman has done a ton of that research, has broadcast it into fescue and had pretty good success with it. Yeah. When I've tried to use his protocol, I haven't had good success. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. I just haven't been able to make it work. So I use a drill when I can. Yeah, but you have access to one, right? And when I didn't have access to one, I still went and rented it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, people are going to get hung up on, on that part, right? Yeah. The, the rental fee, I mean, it's $10 an acre with a minimum of 10 acres. Well, and that's... You plus know, seed costs. Plus, plus seed costs and all of that. I think it really comes down to we need to be really being better economists because if it'll pay for itself and be worth more to do it than not Mm -hmm. it makes total sense to do it yeah i guess like i'm hung up on a ten dollar drill cost right ten dollar an acre but if you can get twenty dollars worth of good out of it yeah then it's worth it or if i can decrease my hay consumption exactly yeah because to ice basically yeah you know that's the other thing is the same person that gets hung up on renting a drill isn't hung up on, you know, having a bunch of, of money leveraged into other things that rust and depreciate. And, you yeah. know, I'm talking about a hay baler here, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a or fertilizer, fertilizer, whatever it may be. You know, we put money where we enjoy putting it to some extent. Because if you talk to somebody that's, you know, been around long enough where they didn't have round bales. And you ask him, well, how much hay did you feed whenever it was all square bales? Undoubtedly, every single one I've ever asked, and I have asked a lot, they didn't feed nearly as much. Because mm-hmm. he had to take it out of the barn, had to put it in the truck, had to stand in the back of the truck, drive across the field, throw them out. Well, that's inconvenient, and it's cold. But you can just hop into the cab tractor and go fork a bale and move it across the farm. Yeah. You know, you do a whole lot more of that because it's it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, because I can, you know, the naysayers are going to say, well, you got to you gotta rent the drill every time, you know? Yep. I mean, there's going to be scheduling issues, whatever. And there always is. But, but from a for the main part, you know, renting the drill, it's more priority than it is, yeah. you know, m- dollar priority. Yeah, because, you know, it's, it's hard to justify purchasing a drill. You've got to be a pretty big producer. You've got to be doing a lot of, of, of summer annuals. Yeah, but you know, utilize the the thing your tax dollars paid for. You know, go rent the one that's sitting at the county soil and water office. Yeah, most of the time they are just sitting there. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. I mean, and something that should be talked about. I mean, we've kind of strayed away from it again, and I'm going to bring it back. Um, we'll, we'll get it this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My final thing to that I got notes on with the system was you were talking a while ago now it was about uh kind of how you you're you were managing your cow herd with all this what are what are you doing with your replacement heifers you know what does that look like yeah so i'm trying to uh you know on my replacement heifers they are are basically strictly on grass until breeding um so that makes that makes for pretty cheap raising of them if you got the grass and you got the quality to grow them out mm-hmm. so this current group started with 22 um two of them just right off the bat they they weren't going to fit the mold so they got sold 
Um, so then I ran 20 for the longest time, and they were on nothing but fescue and Bermuda grass, and then a little bit on those, those natives back there. And, uh, you know, I put them on my best grass. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't put them on my worst ground. I was putting them where I knew they would have success and where they'd grow. And, um, you know, I think development on grass is definitely a possibility because when I look at the records of, you know, the heifers that were developed on grass and grain on the same farm beforehand, mm-hmm. you know, I'm within 5% of them. So okay. I have less feed cost and I utilize forage that, you know, I just couldn't have utilized otherwise because the cow herd would have been somewhere else. Yeah. So that was part of it. Um, you know, and right now they are, uh, they're in a mixed group with some, some first calf cows and they're getting pound, pound and a half a grain a day. So not a whole lot, just enough to give them a little bit extra. Um, that still on the fence about if I wouldn't have had a fall drought and I actually had better grass, they wouldn't be getting that either. Mm-hmm. But for, you know, where I'm at, I don't have the, uh, don't have the grass that I'm willing to give up to keep growing them out because I still want to maintain a pretty decent amount of stockpile to go through the winter with. Yeah. And it's cheaper just to pay the feed truck to come drop it off at this point. Um, you know, and the other thing is with those two new bulls, they came out of not fescue country. They're getting put on fescue. There's still some endophyte stuff out there just the time of year that we've got that hasn't dissipated out like it will by February. Mm-hmm. So don't want to give them a, uh, you know, a handicap right off the bat. So yeah. that's part of the other reason why they're getting just a little bit of grain. Um, and then, okay, so back up. So calves are born in the fall, mm-hmm. September, October, uh, November. So they are born, um, try to run a very tight calving window starting kind of the first week of September and hope to be completely done by the first week of October. So 30 days. Yeah. So this time, you know, you're going to always have stragglers. Yep. Um, this time, the 60 head that had calves, uh, let's see here, we were 90% done within 21 days. Okay. And then... And that's all running a synchronization protocol on them. So basically, run them like you're going to AI them, and then do natural service. Okay. So I think there's a lot of good in that, especially if you're in a situation like I am, where this is, I want this to be as easy as possible, because I'm still doing three jobs around my own farm, and trying to have a life (laughs) yeah um so if i can get everybody on the ground and happy and living and nursing on mom in a month yeah you've got a hectic month but then you're done yeah so that's the way i'm looking at it that's why at least part of this group that's being bred right now was synced all Mm -hmm. the heifers first calf guys were were synced um just because if i can get everybody on the ground as quick as possible my life gets a whole lot easier because at that time you know the other thing to remember with this is I've got field days, I've got grazing schools, I've got a lot of stuff that distracts me from actually raising cows at that point. Mm-hmm. So if I can get everybody done, my life's easier. And are you the guy fixing the fence and yep. so waters and everything that happens the there, it's me. Okay. So plus, that's that's the other thing. Plus teaching. Yeah. Plus okay. still being an agronomist for three counties, being the, the maintenance guy, the director, the you name it. It's okay. It's uh, it's all you. It's all me. Okay, so the calves are born. Yep. When uh, on the cow go through the winter. When are we weaning? So we will uh, we'll wean usually late April, and that will 
let me sell them, usually give them about three to four weeks. I'll be selling the first week of June. Okay. Are you, so you're weaning them. Are you going to a lot, dry lot, or are you going out, right out to pasture and just grazing them? What are you doing there? Yeah, so that, um, I'll dry lot them for a day just to try to keep yeah. the ball out of them and keep them from breaking fences down. Um, and then they are on grass until I sell them. Okay. So try to keep feed, try to keep grain out of the situation as much as I can just from the economic standpoint of it. Okay. And you know, then how are you, so of that, what would you say, there's 70, 60 cows there? Yep. So let's say 30 or steers, 30 mm-hmm. or heifers. Um, are you bringing in people to help you pick the heifers to keep? Are you doing like a – like to show me select what are what are you doing how are you doing your replacements or is it just basically what you like um basically going back and looking at records of you know who the dam and sire of their mother was you know what bull did it come out of as far as my replacement heifers go um and then was there any issue with mom did she have you know she not the most heat tolerant is she always seeking out the shade tree you know stuff like that Mm -hmm. um and then whenever we do AI, that really plays a little big role in it. Am I trying to get something, you know, was it heat tolerance I'm trying to bring in with the current set of bulls, you know, it'll be, uh, I'm really interested in having some calves out of these new bulls. So I'll probably keep some heifers out of them. Yep. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is just when were they born? So if you were, you know, the first week of calving, obviously your mother breeds pretty quick you know, whether she was synced or not, um, and just common sense, <laughs> Yeah, you know, don't let something get in your way, don't get hung up on, well, she came out of this cow or whatever, well, if she doesn't meet your parameters, then that doesn't work, Yeah, and then pelvic everything. I you mean, do pelvic everything. Yes, so, because this year, I mean, there was probably my best heifer, you know, she stood out there in 105 degree heat, ate everything down, you know, grew out the best. She was the the best looking of the group. Mm-hmm. Didn't pelvic though, and she would have never thought it. Had you, how off was she? She was twenty five percent below everybody else, and everybody else passed. So she was one twenty five, I think. I mean, she was pretty small. And what's passing? I uh, passing would be about one hundred and fifty. One hundred and fifty, and then do you? Uh, I was reading that man cattle veld, mm-hmm. felt or however you want yeah. to pronounce it. But they talk a lot about the kind of the pelvic measuring. I mean, uh, when you've pelvic measured on groups we've calved before, we haven't pelvic measured ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be for other groups we've calved. And we've pulled calves before mm-hmm. out of those pelvic. Are you doing stuff like that? Are you pulling, having to pull calves? Or are you watching your bulls? What? You so, know? yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to avoid is I don't want to pull anything. So I go calving ease bulls, stuff with proven track record. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if they're not uh, not proven, then that's might not make it. I mean, EPDs can be good until, you know, that EPD yeah. changes later on. Yeah, liar. Um, but anyway, you know, I don't want to pull. I, uh, you know, it's a quick way to wear yourself out. Yep. So, less work, the better. On, uh, I guess, pelvic measuring, back mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. Uh, what size cow are you shooting for? Or you don't, you just want a cow that'll work? 
So I want a cow that'll work first and foremost, but really shooting for like that 1150 mark. So not too big, but definitely not on the small size either. Do you think by pelvic measuring to a standard, right? Mm -hmm. Because somebody put in a standard to say what a big pelvis is or what an adequate pelvis is. Um, Do you think by going with that measurement that your cows are going to get bigger? Mm, there is the potential you could maybe skew it that way, but if you're still selecting on the backside, you just get something that has a pelvis that measures on the and, is the, and is the same same thing. Yeah, fair enough. I was just, just yeah. wondering. No, no, no. I mean, that's, you know, if you just went off pelvic, I could totally see how you'd, you'd move it one way or another. Um, you know, because a, a cow that has a small pelvis, you maybe won't have to pull a calf out of her. Mm-hmm. But the research says if she hits this mark by this age at, you know, 60% of her body weight, then it's going to pass a 65-pound calf. You know, it's easy insurance to have. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. No, I was just uh, curious. What weight are your heifers breeding at? What do you know? Or what weight yeah. they're calving at? Yeah. So they're going to be uh, they're gonna be breeding at about 750, 760 um and then you know that'll put them calving 975 a thousand or so still have a little bit of growing to do but they're most of the way done mostly mature do uh other extension people do they come around and see what you're doing or are you just running it like your own so um you know we do have a lot of, of other extension folks coming in and seeing what we're doing putting their own spin on things you know Mm-hmm. I'm not just running it on my own, so to speak. The the weird out of the box stuff, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I am not ashamed to you know rely on somebody else that knows more about something than I do. I mean, that's why I didn't go pick those two bulls out because you don't. Uh, I don't have the, the best eye. But somebody else would come to me if they had a grass question. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how to put this. So it's kind of like a group group ap- effort yeah. per se. Um, do you butt heads with, I mean, is there any head butting as, you know, you're, you're focusing on managing forage, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then that cow needs to work for how your forage is going to be managed. But what mainstream is saying that cow needs to do is going to look different yes. than your forage management. So how, how do you get around that? Because, I mean, I, I think it can be tied into multi-generations. And, and as people start uh, kind of changing operations or, mm-hmm. or putting more focus on plants and grazing versus animals, I mean, that's ultimately going to change something. Yeah, and, you know, the multi-generational part of it's the, the part that I guess stands out to me is when I go do a farm visit, you know, I'm there because they think there's improvement opportunities. But if it's, you know, multiple generations on the same farm, they're each going to have a different idea of what they want to improve. Mm-hmm. And there is sort of the old guard. You know, we do have an aging ag world, and they're not wrong because they've done what has worked for years and years and years. You know, these guys, you know, maybe they sent three kids to college on into fight infected tall fescue and 1800 pound cows and you know that worked for them yeah the world's a little different now so whether that be you know diesel or fertilizer prices or what have you 
we are seeing a change because when you talk to their son, their grandson, granddaughter, whoever's taking it over, you know, they're focusing on different things. And mm-hmm. I, I'm excited for that because, you know, without that, we don't make progress. Yeah. So there is a box that we try to fit everything into. And to an extent, we've got to, we've got to work to make that box better, mm-hmm. you know. So whether that's bigger, make it a different shape, whatever it is. But there's always room for those people that are thinking outside the box because eventually that's what the box becomes. Yeah. You know, because if you look back at, you know, cattle grazing, you know, in the 40s and 50s, we're kind of getting back to a little bit of that. They changed the box to what made the most sense for them that became, you know, black cows and, um, you know, big sizes and all of that through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. Um but we're going to smaller cows. We're going to more diverse forages. We're thinking of, you know, how can we incorporate cows into crops and stuff? Yeah. Stuff that was the norm 50, yeah, 80, 100 years ago. Homestead farms. And exactly. Use, utilizing everything and stacking enterprises. and So I think as we get new people involved, as we get people that don't have an ag background involved, you know, that is that is a good opportunity because they they haven't had their ideas skewed by what, Dad yeah, what, grandpa did. Yeah, exactly. You know, my my wife's a good example of that. She didn't grow up on a livestock farm. She had some background with, uh, you know, her uh, her family doing row crops, but she basically does what she learned at the university and has seen work on farms. So mm-hmm. she's picking up everything that she sees as successful, and then is able to glean from it what she was taught. You know. You know, some things you're taught work really well. Some things you're taught worked really well in the 80s when the book was written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you look at on-farm stuff, I mean, you know, stuff people like Harry Coper is doing, Yeah, you know, he has a, a, a very different forage mentality. Everything's a forage to him, whether he plants it or it grows itself. Yeah. So that works, but that definitely doesn't fit inside the box. But as we get new people involved, that becomes more normalized. So... I think that's exciting. And you think that's changing? I really do. I mean, you know, whether it be, you know, people moving in and doing almost the homestead type deal mm-hmm. or just, you know, younger folks coming in, it's it's changing. And I think it's changing for the better because people are, are getting away from a monoculture of whatever it is. Yeah, monoculture of black cows and fescue. Yep. And from an extension side and a university side, do you see that changing? Or you th- you think that's kind of c- going to be the last piece that kind of uh, progressive producers kind basically say, hey, this is we're moving on. It's changing, um, but I think the thing to remember with that, it's changing. Everyone wants to change it in a way to you know, we want to see people be a success. Mm-hmm. You know, as a university, we're here to serve the people, and. The thing that I think we need to remember is not all of those people want change. So we can only move that needle so far. Yeah. You know, because we still do have the fescue and black cows make up a lot of, you know, the the cows in Missouri. I mean, we have 13 million acres of fescue in this state. So going out and telling everybody, kill all your fescue, plant novel endophyte fescue, plant native warm season grasses, you do a lot more harm than good, I think, because then you have Mm -hmm. people just throw the brakes on and say, well, the university doesn't have any relevance anymore. Yeah. So 
you know, we can move the needle slowly. We can move it in a in a positive way, but yeah, we've got some good minds that are that are doing that. It's just farmer acceptance has to match it too. We can't only, you know, appeal to the guy that is you know has that regenerative mindset, that sustainable ag focus. Yeah, because you know but, maybe that's one out of a hundred people. But it takes you on a university farm you know, working as a collective with other yeah. extension people to basically demonstrate what is possible and out of the norm, which I think is going to trend to be the new normal. And and that's where I think I, I uh, have a very unique opportunity and a very uh, a good, good place to set that example. Because, you know, I think I alluded to it earlier, those who have adopted rotational grazing, management intensive grazing, They've either already done it or they've come up with every excuse not to. Mm-hmm. Well, those early adopters, those ones that are going to see it and do it, they need the next big thing because we don't have that. And maybe that is, you know, grazing a standing milo crop in the winter. Yeah. That's an easy one. You know, maybe it's something something bigger. Maybe that's, you know, feeding waste product from a bakery to your cows or something else. You know, it's going to take something to show the early adopters that are out there what the next big thing is. And if I can do that by being hay-free, by using alternative forages, different stored forages, you know, stockpiled stuff, then eventually I think that can become the norm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's all good stuff. I mean, I think that's important to keep pushing forward and, you know, it, you see a lot of people that might get caught up or, or just kind of stagnant yeah, right, with thinking and, you know, but I think there's always room to improve and learn and, yep. and, and ultimately increase your, your profitability. And that's, that's what it comes down to. You know, if you can't do something profitably, you shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very few folks, and the cattle industry really keep good enough records of their costs and expenses and stuff. Yeah, because if you look at budgets and stuff like that, I mean, every time the cow-calf is, they're losing money. Yeah. So, is the Wardak farm making money? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm making enough money I can hire somebody. <laughs> so Yeah, with your cows? Yep. So, his budget, his salary will come completely out of the cows, so... We're making money. That's pretty neat. So, what all do you take out of that? Can I ask that? So, yeah. like, how do you, how do you break that down to figure that out? Yeah. So, um, you know, that is the thing. It's not unique to Wardak, but it is a a good selling point. You know, whenever I I try to tell a farmer that they can do this too, is that farm is completely self sufficient. So, mm-hmm. if I want to buy a tractor. I've got to sell cows, I've got to sell timber, I've got to do something to pay for it. Really, the only difference between it and and you is I don't pay taxes. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference. Um, so, you know, that the money is going to come primarily from cattle sales. Um, you know, I've got a 1,000 acres of timber, so there is the occasional timber sale. Mm-hmm. And then um, there is an endowment. So I do get some money out of that, but... You know, it's no different than if you just had some wise investments. It's not a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Can you say how much or not really? Um, I mean, cattle sales-wise. Yeah, cattle sales-wise. I mean, this year, um, calves brought in about 60000 
And then with all the coals I had, you know, probably another twenty to 30000 on top of that, which, you know, that isn't the norm. But, mm-hmm. you know, probably that 50000 mark is about what cows, cattle sales have been, yep. you know, calves and the occasional coal cow. So that's not that out of the ordinary. And if you're not wasting your money on, you know, things that rust and diesel fuel and all that, you yeah. can keep a lot of that money in the system. Uh, are you guys fertilizing? So the hay ground has been fertilized. Um, you know, that's the thing. I saw a return there. Mm-hmm. You know, I still made hay this year because I didn't know that I could go as hay free as I thought I could. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I put up 470, 480 bales, you know, four by five round bales net wrapped this year. Um, almost all of that ground was fertilized. That's going to get fed out on, on the different paddocks. So, I mean, really that fertilizer is going a lot further than just that hay field. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I ran into a lot this spring is fertilizer got high and people said, well, I can't afford that. If you look at the value of the actual forage you could have produced, especially when you get a drought right after it, it still probably was worth it. Yeah. But on this farm in particular, yeah, we fertilize. And uh, just that'll probably hay, just the hay. Okay. Um Looking back at the records, the grazing ground hasn't been fertilized since at least the 80s. Do you think with fertilizer you could increase your stocking rate? Yeah, but I, I'd really have to push the numbers to see if it'd be worth it. You know, because... Yeah, that's talking, like an argument I, you know, well, without fertilizer, you know, or, ba- you know, hey, you know, you could have increased your stocking rate, right? Yeah. But no one ever talks about at what, what cost. Exactly. And... You know, I think that that's true for, for any industry, whether it's your any ag industry, whether it's cows, whether it's corn. The coffee shop, they hear bushels. The coffee shop, they hear head per, you know, farm. They don't care about head per acre. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever talks about the dollars behind it. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what we need to drive all of our decisions on. I, I 100% agree with that. Um, what kind of timber sales or what, what is the timber aspect of, of that farm look like? Cause that's, yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, I don't really know a whole lot about trying to learn more about it as we kind of do some silvo pastures and timber mm-hmm. stand improvement and some, some more clear cutting. Yeah. Um, so the timber part of it, um, there's about a thousand acres, and that's kind of split up in the different units that are variable in size, but usually it's based on the trees that are growing there, the soil type, whatever the potential for growth is. Mm-hmm. And um, that is all managed as well. You know, an unmanaged forest is is really unuseful, you know, whether that be, um, you know, invasive species coming in or unuseful trees. Mm-hmm. But all of us managed for white oak on the farm. So um, we have uh, have some stave mills nearby. So we have a good place to go with our white oak. In, northern, in the northern part of the Ozarks, we really produce some high-quality white oak just because it's got rough conditions to grow in. So the, the rings are pretty close together. So our white oak is sought after in the, uh, in the whiskey barrel-making world. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of it, for the most part, is managed for white oak production. So um, that farm was, to give you a little history of it, that whole area was clear cut in the 1890s um, to feed the uh, iron furnace in Sligo, Missouri, which is about five miles away. Um, and that really opened it up for a lot of small farms to come in because you had some of this bottom ground that was basically an impenetrable forest beforehand. 
and now you can farm it. Um, but now, you know, all these white oaks are about, you know, 130 to 100 years old, and there's it's time to harvest them. That's really what I think a lot of folks forget about your, uh, you know, your timber is they look at it that's this resource that's going to last forever because, you know, trees you know, mm-hmm. are this thing that seemingly live forever, but they only last so long. And, you know, the, the best way I've ever had it put to me, Harry Cope told me this, was it's like if you had a, a crop of corn standing out there and it's ready to pick, it's, you know, dried down, it's 15%, you could run the combine through it, but he said, eh, I don't want to, it looks too pretty, or it's doing whatever, and then you wait. Well, eventually it loses that value. If you wait on corn, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, by the end of the winter, it's on the ground. If you wait on that forest, you know, they hollowed out, they split in half, windstorm came, pushed them over, whatever it is. Yeah. So you got to get it when it's time to harvest. And I deal with that on on some of my, my uh, you know, family's place. There's a forest that needs to be needs to be harvested. Will it be? No, it won't. Until <laughs> <laughs> it all blows down. Exactly. But yeah, so um, as far as timber management, I mean, it's uh, doing doing uh, good timber management and then doing good logging is really the way to go. You know, there's this idea that, you know, logging is this dirty, nasty thing and you end up with oil cans and, you know, Vienna sausage containers everywhere when they're done and stumps everywhere. Yeah. If you choose a bad logger, I'm not going to say that won't happen, but if mm-hmm. you have a timber management plan, you go through it, and you choose a logger that's going to follow it, then it could be a very healthy thing for the woods. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, and there's a lot of opportunity to be had there. I mean. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, there's a lot of money there for the given farm. You know, White Oak's worth a lot right now. Yeah. So, if that's yeah, what like helps you. you said, it's if it's just going to, you know, kind of hit its maximum potential and then decrease yeah. from that point. I mean, why not utilize it and, and put yourself that much further ahead, whether it's, I mean, if you, if you're worried about using that kind of money or, you know, taking that resource, right. Yeah. It could be put into other, other resources. Oh, totally. To, I mean, to your operation, you fencing, know, whether that's grazing infrastructure, you know, building something, buying something or, converting that ground into a pasture or silver pasture. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of a, you know, a, a silver lining to any time you're cutting something is you might be able to make that ground a little more useful in another way. Yep. Agreed. Um, what kind of money comes from that for the Wardak farm? Yeah. So, um, you know, we don't do timber sales every year, obviously. It's just whenever a, a piece is ready to be cut because mm-hmm. um, there has been logging basically since the 60s in some way, you know, whether that's, it's all been very selective. So sometimes we took out all the stuff that was ready. We left a bunch of smaller trees. Now they're ready. Um, You know, usually it's, you know, going to bring in, whenever we make a sale, it'll usually bring in what the cow sales that year do. About 60. Yeah, 60. Sometimes it's more, um, just depending on how big the unit is that we log. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this time we're logging an 80-acre section we're leaving a lot of trees though you know we're not taking really we're maybe we're taking 50 percent of the trees and that's that's still going to make about what the cows did this year mm-hmm. and is there any other animals any other species crops no um so basically we're here um for ozarks agriculture is what i'm supposed to demonstrate and show how to improve on and you know it's going to be a harder sell to get 
somebody to let me you know, put goats or sheep out there and just the process of buying animals it kind of gets a little more difficult than the normal farmer you mm-hmm. know my personal place i want to go buy a sheep i can go buy a sheep there you know i've got to go through the hoops of having campus pay for things and stuff like that yeah uh, do you think, I mean, do you small ruminants have a place in agri- uh, cattle farms? I really think they do. I mean, you know, goats especially, um, you know, we talked a lot about getting cows to eat weeds. Mm-hmm. You don't have to train a goat. <laughs> They're going to yep. do it anyway. So, you know, if you can run a mixed herd or, you know, have a different herd on the farm that you're grazing, you know, on that same acre at some point, you can make a lot of strides on on getting weeds under control or you know, keeping brush in check. So, I think they have a lot of a lot of potential, and the money's there. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at their cost and look at what they bring, I mean, pound per pound, it's it really favors going small ruminants. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I hope to you know incorporate more of that type stuff. I mean, we talked a little bit about that. That's probably a whole another podcast though on uh, incorporating. Multi-species, finishing operation on yeah. continuous covers. and <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that's that, that's really the thing. I mean, we, we've hit on some native warm season grasses stuff. We've hit on, on fescue, the good, the bad, and the ugly a little bit. And, uh, you know, diversity, I think, is the key, whether that's different animals or just different forages. So yep. diverse covers, you know, diverse native grasses, I think. Change it up and see what sticks. Yeah. Anything else you want to add or talk about? Questions, concerns? Um, you know, things I, you need to get off your chest about university. <laughs> no, we won't go there. Um, but you know, I think the thing that I'd like to really, uh, really drive home is, you know, I think there's a bigger place in agriculture for our native species. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, they provide a lot of forage when maybe some other things don't, or maybe they're a little more adaptable. If we think about, you know, the Midwest, in one way, shape, or form, this is a grassland. Yeah. Missouri has more trees now than it ever had in its history. And I'm not saying trees are a bad thing, but trees in an area that wasn't supposed to be trees might not be doing the good that it needs to. Yeah. Um. So... You know, having having more of these native grasses, having more of a natural ecosystem, I think is going to help us in the long run. Whether that be, you know, just habitat for wildlife, whether that be carbon sequestration, whether that be, you know, you know, any environmental thing is going to help us with that. Mm-hmm. And I think we can incorporate them into, you know, the tall fescue grassland that we've created. Yeah, I think kind of one thing about incorporating natives as we're doing some of these uh logging projects mm-hmm. we're kind of seeing without the ground disturbance uh like actual dirt disturbance yeah. y- you know just by the disturbance of adding more sunlight you know to the soil surface we're getting some of these natives whether it be some sort of wild rye mm-hmm. or uh oh like what river oats yeah you know getting some of that stuff just to express itself i mean that's well and that's the the beautiful thing about like clearing, you know, brush and woodland type areas, mm-hmm. usually that was never planted to fescue. So you get a pretty good glimpse into what should have been here. Yeah. And we're like when we were picking some of these areas, you know, mm-hmm. on what we want to do, you know, I was walking through our timber and, 
you know, I'd find a spot, you know, where maybe a tree had died and it put some light to the canopy and, you know, there's some sort of weird native grass yeah. there. I mean, so, I mean. The soil that, seed bank is there. It's just, we cover it up with, with fescue all too often. Fescue or, or just trees from unmanaged, yeah. unmanaged woods. Yep. Yeah, so I, I've got a lot of hope for that, and I think this is going to be pretty neat. So, all righty. Um, yeah, tell them how they can find you. I mean, maybe you don't want to be found. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, happy to have people get in touch with me. Um, always happy to talk about native plants or grazing stuff that isn't fescue. Um, and I'm I'm located there at the the Wardeck Education and Extension Center. Um, that's in Cook Station. Like I said, Cook Station you're never going to accidentally find it, but, uh, they can reach out to me. Um, probably the best way is, uh, by email and that's button G that's B U N T O N G at Missouri.edu. Missouri's all spelled out in that. Um, if the gates open there at Wardak, we're at 164 Bales road in cook station. If the gates open, we're open kind of a by chance or appointment deal. So email me first. <laughs> yeah. Really? So how, how many stop-ins do you have? Oh, I'll get about two or three a month usually. Yeah, um, just people passing. Yeah, people pass through or, you know, they've been there uh, for like an FFA field day or something when they were a kid and wanted to see what we're doing now. Get a lot of those. Really? Yep. That's pretty cool. Yep. Open door policy. Open gate policy. Gates open, we're open. <laughs> cool. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, I don't even know if you said your name on the beginning of it, but if you want to re- let your name go, yeah, uh, that way they can send you all the hate mail. Yeah, send me any hate mail. Name's Gatlin Bunton. Uh, you got my email. <laughs> Come at him. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks, I, August. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you much.